You are listening to Lighthearted, the official podcast of the United States Lighthouse Society. My name is Jeremy Dontremont. Welcome. My co-host today is Cindy Johnson, award-winning volunteer of Friends of Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouses and copy editor for the U.S. Lighthouse Society. Hi, Cindy. Hi, Jeremy. This is January 30th, 2022, and this is episode 158 of Lighthearted. In a few minutes, we'll be listening to part one of a two-part interview with retired Coast Guard Rear Admiral Dan May, who had a very distinguished career as an ocean engineer for the Coast Guard, was involved in some of the most high-profile lighthouse projects in the past few decades. First, I want to mention that we are recording on January 22nd, early this past week, pretty much uh, Sunday night into Monday. Uh, We had a major storm here on the New Hampshire seacoast. The storm caused a lot of flooding and damage in the area, including at Coast Guard Station Portsmouth Harbor. Cindy, of course, uh, regular listeners know that you and I are involved with Portsmouth Harbor Lighthouse there. Yes. The storm flooded our storage shed on the Coast Guard Station, uh, which is a maybe a couple hundred feet from the lighthouse. It flooded the storage shed and destroyed some of our merchandise and literature in there. And it did some minor damage to the oil house, which is uh, basically right on the rocks uh, near the lighthouse. Uh, And also the walkway that goes out to the lighthouse. In my 21 years of being involved there, this was one of the two worst storms I've seen. The other worst one was in April 07. uh, Mm -hmm. Cindy, I know you are actually in Arizona right now. But I I think you've uh, been monitoring the situation. Right. Yes. Uh, I'm actually spending some time at my mom's in Tucson, but I'm in touch with you and Michelle. And I couldn't believe the pictures of the station and our storage shed. So I just really wanted to say uh, many thanks to you both, you and Michelle, for cleaning up as best you could the other day, along with FPHL volunteers, uh, William Marshall and Dave Garabedian. Yes, uh, they they did. Uh, what's the word? Yeoman <laughs> work, volunteering. It was uh, it was a mess, but could have been worse, of course. Um, and we had moved a lot of the merchandise out of there to our offsite storage unit. Exactly. I'm so glad that we have so much of our merchandise in a storage unit offsite. Yeah. Yeah, well, things could have been worse, but we'll be dealing with cleanup and repairs for a while. That's okay. We have a bunch of good volunteers. We sure do. So, Cindy, please help me tell our listeners about today's guest. Okay, Jeremy. Daniel R. May graduated with a degree in ocean engineering from the U.S. Coast Guard Academy in New London, Connecticut in the class of 1979. After time aboard the Coast Guard Cutter Ingram, based in Portsmouth, Virginia, Dan became the ocean engineer for the 5th Coast Guard District. During his time as the ocean engineer for the 5th District, Dan worked on lighthouse projects from Delaware Bay to the Carolinas, along with other engineering projects involving buoys and other structures on the water. He earned a master's degree in ocean engineering from the University of Rhode Island in 1982. During a four-year tour at the National Data Buoy Center, he was responsible for the expansion of the Ocean and Coastal Weather Data Collection Network to nearly 80 locations, including coastal lighthouse sites. After time as the commanding officer of Coast Guard Station St. Louis, Dan moved to Civil Engineering Unit Providence, Rhode Island, where he served as the project engineer for several major lighthouse projects, including the relocation of Block Island Southeast Light, the first move of a major lighthouse structure in the United States. 
Dan served as the commander of Coast Guard Group Boston from 2001 to 2004. He was assigned as commander of the Coast Guard's Personnel Service Center in May 2010 and retired as a Rear Admiral in 2013. He served as a member of the Board of Trustees for the U.S. Coast Guard Academy during his active duty time and previously served as the Assistant Superintendent of the Coast Guard Academy. Rear Admiral Dan May is the recipient of numerous awards, including three Legions of Merit Awards, two Meritorious Service Medals, four Coast Guard Commendation Medals, three Achievement Medals, three Special Operations Awards, two Unit Commendation Awards, and three Meritorious Unit Commendations. He was the 1992 Rear Admiral John B. Oren Award recipient for the most significant contributions to the Coast Guard Civil Engineering Program. I've known Dan for many years. It was a real pleasure having a chance to talk about his career and some of the Lighthouse projects he's been involved with. We conducted the interview using Zoom a couple of weeks ago, and because there was so much to talk about, the interview has been divided into two parts. We'll hear part one today, and part two will be released next week on February 6th. In part one, we talk about projects involving the Lighthouse at Montauk, New York, the moves of Block Island Southeast Lighthouse in Rhode Island, and several projects involving Boston Light, among uh, quite a few other things. So let's listen to part one of my conversation with Dan May now. I'm speaking this afternoon with retired Coast Guard Rear Admiral Dan May. Thank you so much for joining me today, Dan. Good to be here, Jeremy. I really appreciate it. So uh, we're speaking today via Zoom, and you're at your home in Newburyport, Massachusetts, which is about a half hour south of where I am in Portsmouth, New Hampshire here. Uh, Newburyport, for people who might not know it, is a great small city with a lot of maritime history. Newburyport is often referred to as the birthplace of the Coast Guard because the first revenue cutter uh, in the United States was built there in 1791. Revenue cutter service later was uh, part of what uh, launched the Coast Guard, basically. Uh, So Newburyport, I'd say, is a good place for a retired Coast Guard officer to live. Yeah, it's been uh, on our radar for many years, and when we decided to retire, we couldn't think of a better place to come. Uh-huh. But let me ask you a two-part question for you. Where are you from originally, and what led you to go into the Coast Guard? Believe it or not, I grew up in, uh, back then, was a small town, not so much today, but Orlando, Florida, home to Disney World. Of course, I grew up before Disney, and it was a great little town. I spent a lot of my time out on the water. Uh, as a young kid growing up, uh, every waking minute was outside. We didn't have the uh, technology that young folks today do. So it was outside, uh, swimming, boating, fishing. And I loved to go to the beach. I had the uh, surfboard and uh, a bunch of buddies and myself spent just about uh, every bit of time we could over on Cocoa Beach, New Smyrna Beach, Daytona Beach. I would see these white boats going out from Cape Canaveral with uh, later with stripes on them and U.S. Coast Guard. It always interested me. So I actually found the Coast Guard Academy through the Naval Academy. I had a good friend of mine that went to the Naval Academy and I was going to follow in his footsteps. He was a year older than me. But along the way, I found the Coast Guard Academy. And the more I thought about it, I said, you know, I'd, I like the missions. I like working every day on, on something, saving lives, uh, aids to navigation, all the missions that the Coast Guard had. So with my love of the water, it was a perfect fit. And uh, off I went uh, to the Coast Guard Academy in the summer of 1975. We're very similar in age. That's about when I started college myself. So. 
I think we're, we're pretty close. Yeah. Uh, and at the Coast Guard Academy, what made you decide to major in ocean engineering? I was always really good at math. And so when I first got the academy, of course, the uh, Coast Guard Academy is an engineering college. And so they had very limited majors. Most all of them were engineering majors, but they did have a math major. And since I was really good at math, I said, you know, I'll be a math major. And um, I started out on that path for about a year. And my advisor called me in one day and said, you know, Dan, you're really good at math, but have you thought about using your math skills in one of the engineering majors. That might be a, a better fit for you. And that really got me thinking. And so I did. I, I looked at the engineering majors and um, naval architecture, marine engineering, civil engineering, electrical engineering. And uh, they had this major called ocean engineering. And with my affinity for the water, I said, wait a second, this looks fantastic. And um, so I said, I think I'm going to be an ocean engineer. And for those that may not know, an ocean engineer is basically the same thing as a civil engineer. Uh, it's all about design of structures and buildings. The only difference is that as an ocean engineer, you take in the effects of wind, water, waves, corrosion, those sort of things that you'll find in a marine environment. So for, for a kid like me who had spent uh, all this time on the water and loved the water, I thought it was a perfect fit. And looking back now, Jeremy, after all these years, uh, I got to say that was probably the one of the best decisions I, I ever made because I, I just loved it. Well, I guess so. Well, it certainly led to a really interesting career. And early in your career, after uh, graduating from the academy, for some time you were the ocean engineer for the 5th Coast Guard District, right? which covers uh, Delaware Bay down to uh, as far as South Carolina. And um, you were involved in a number of projects uh, in that position. Uh, one thing I understand you were, uh, you actually had some involvement with Cape Hatteras Lighthouse in North Carolina, kind of in the early days of uh, when they were talking about what to do about the erosion problem there. I did. And, and it, um, it was just a great area for me as a young, young engineer working. Um, that area was so diverse you had the Chesapeake Bay in the northern part of what pretty much they call Delmarva, uh, Delaware, Maryland, uh, Virginia, and then, of course, the Carolinas. But the lighthouses that we worked on uh, were so uh, diverse because you had the big, what I would call the tall landmark lighthouses like Hatteras, Bodie Island, Curatuck Beach, Cape Lookout. And then you got up into the bay and you had these caisson structures you had uh, screw pile structures, you had all these different different types, but I did spend a lot of time in the Outer Banks and I was fascinated with Hatteras, obviously because of its prominence as the tallest brick lighthouse in America and just so majestic in that barber pole, black and white paint uh, daymark shape. And so um, Hatteras was interesting because it's similar to a few other places around the country that you'll find where the National Park Service has a uh, park, and in this case, the Outer Banks uh, National Seashore, the Coast Guard transferred all of the property and buildings over to the Park Service. So the Coast Guard was only responsible for the light, not the structure of the building. But we became good partners to work with the Park Service. And so during my 
time, I had been down there many times and I had met a couple of engineers from the park service. And uh, at that time, this was around 1980, 1981, Hatteras was being uh, severely eroded. Um, and that's gonna be a common thing, I think, in our discussion today. Many lighthouses across this country are threatened by erosion. So Hatteras being one of those, and so the Park Service came to me and said, you know, hey, you, you've got some experience and knowledge as an ocean engineer, we, we've, and you've got a lot of records that we may not have. Could you, you know, help us out? Give us your thoughts. And so I did. I spent about a month making a number of trips down there, and I also went back to the Coast Guard records. And um, one of the interesting things I found dating back to the 1700s is that particular point of land had always been subject to storms and erosion. And then it would go through periods of sand uh, building back up. And so it was this cyclical pattern. But the interesting thing I found was that it never quite built back to its original state. Mm -hmm. So in other words, there's a net loss of sand Yep. And so I mapped all this out over about a 200 and some year period. And then uh, the other thing I found, which, again, as an ocean engineer, you're involved in building structures in the water. The Navy in the 1940s to protect, they had built an installation just north of Hatteras. To protect that installation, they built groins, which are rock structures perpendicular to the coastline out into the ocean. Well, that did a great job of trapping sand. There's a thing called the littoral drift, which is the drift of sand along the east coast of the United States. Typically, uh, along that stretch of Hatteras, it's north to south. So the groins did a great job of trapping sand for the Navy. Unfortunately, the sand that would have come up and piled up on Hatteras didn't do so. So that just exasperated the problem a little bit worse. So finally, after a lot of um, study and research, I got together back with the Park Service and my conclusion and report to them was uh, eventually you're going to have to move the lighthouse. And so this was around 8081. They saw that then as a daunting task, as you can imagine. And uh, uh, they said, well, we'll, we'll continue to look into it. And uh, uh, I said, okay, fine, uh, you've got my uh, report, but I, I'm convinced sooner or later, you will have to move the lighthouse. And sure enough, I think it was about 20 years that yeah. they uh, eventually ended up moving it around uh, year 2000. But um, yeah. as I predicted, uh, that's exactly what we had to do to save it. Yeah. And even when they finally did move it, I know there was a lot of resistance to it, but I think it's a very good thing that it was finally moved. It was. And, you know, we're going to try to cover a, a lot of ground here. I know you, you've had a, a very illustrious career and involvement with a lot of lighthouse projects. But during the time you were at the uh, fifth district, anything else that really stands out for you uh, as far as lighthouse projects? We had a number of them. I was there for about two and a half, three years. And um, one of the neat things I'll, I'll, I'll mention as we talk of some other lights, but one of the neat things about working on lighthouse, the Coast Guard, uh, not only has Coast Guard men and women, but also civilians that uh, are dedicated and really a lot of them experts in their own right in working lighthouse. I was very fortunate, and it's probably one of the reasons that I 
got to enjoy working on lighthouses as much as I did. A gentleman by the name of Charlie Baines, still good friends today. Charlie was a civilian who worked on all the lighthouses in the 5th District, and he was uh, also the lead guy for most of the automation projects, which was during that period of time, the 1980s, as, as you know, and most lighthouse folks know, the Coast Guard was all about automating lights, taking the people away and setting up these uh, automatic systems. So Charlie and I spent a, a good bit of our time all over the coast. And what I loved about Charlie was it didn't matter uh, the day, the time, whatever, he was there. Uh, I don't think he ever got paid one penny of overtime. We went by boat, helicopter, you name it. He was there with me going out to the lights and the various things. We did uh, a lot of work on the uh, offshore towers. If you are familiar with that coastline, there's three of these. We call them Texas towers. Mm-hmm. From an aesthetic point of view, they're they're not very picturesque, sadly. Right. But, it looked uh, like oil rigs. That's oh, what they yeah. call Texas We call towers. them Texas Towers, but yeah. they took the place of light ships. Yeah. Back in the day when you were light ships, we had frying pan shoals, diamond shoals, and Chesapeake. When the Coast Guard replaced those light ships, they did it with these uh, skeletal towers. They were manned. They were uh, five Coast Guard uh, personnel out there, but as we automated them, Charlie and I spent a lot of time at those offshore towers. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we also worked all through the Chesapeake Bay, the Outer Banks, uh, just just a great uh, uh, place to to be out on the water and to work. Well, you mentioned spending a lot of time at those uh, remote offshore towers, those Texas towers. Do you ever actually get stuck there for any periods of time? Unfortunately, I did. We, Charlie and I got stuck at a couple of lights. Um, he wasn't with me on one trip. I was with a contractor. And we had gone out to Chesapeake Light, and uh, we had a contractor's boat with us most of the week. And uh, towards the end of the week, we were wrapping up work. We released our contractor, and the Coast Guard, uh, uh, in communication with us there in Hampton Road, said, okay, no problem. We'll come get you whenever whenever you guys are ready. So we called them. We finished up the next day, and uh, they sent a boat out, and uh, it was too rough. So we said, okay, we'll come, they'll come the next day. Well, that turned into four days. We were stuck. We had run out of food and water. That was probably the the worst uh, trip I ever recall. But we had a day of fog. They were going to come get us by helicopter. Then it was pea soup fog. They then sent an 82-foot patrol boat the next day and uh, determined it was too rough that day. And then um, we had fog the third day, uh, nobody could fly. Eventually on the fourth day, uh, a big Coast Guard H3 helicopter came out and picked us all up. So uh, we survived, it uh, wasn't all that bad. We did some fishing and we just enjoyed time uh, being out on the the light tower. Wow. So we'll skip ahead a a bit here. And I I know we're uh, skimming over your, your career. There's so much we could talk about, but in 1991, you were assigned to uh, Civil Engineering Unit Providence, CEU Providence, a place I've been to a few times. It was actually in Warwick, Rhode Island. You were involved with a number of lighthouse projects when you were there. The first of those projects involved Montauk Light in New York, one of the best-known lighthouses in America. What was uh, what were you involved with with uh, Montauk at that time? No, it was a great uh, spot. It was early, shortly after I had reported uh, that summer of 1991 to the unit. And I was the, at that time, I was the senior ocean engineer now for the first Coast Guard district. 
working all projects from uh, the main Canadian border down to southern New Jersey. And Montauk, uh, again, a lighthouse threatened by erosion. And as you mentioned, Jeremy, uh, just one of the, I think, most beautiful lighthouses in the country. It is the fourth oldest lighthouse uh, commissioned by George White. Quite a bit of history there. And the lighthouse was being threatened by erosion. So I uh, made a, a number of trips down there and, uh, again, did some research. Uh, something I found uh, that uh, the Coast Guard records, probably not as good today as they were back in those days, but you could find a good bit of information doing, doing research. And that was always part of my projects that I would work on to see what, what history could tell us about that particular site. So interesting there, the lighthouse set up on a hill called Turtle Hill, highest point around. And so uh, if you started looking at what the options were moving the light, plus it was built of sandstone, not the most structural material that you would want to use like brick or granite, something that could withstand uh, a move. So the Corps of Engineers had done some work in the early years. There was a, a woman who lived in the area, Georgiana Reed, who actually had patented a terracing approach. So all of these things had been done throughout the years. But here we were, 1991, and a lot of storms had been uh, taking its toll. And so at that time, Senator Moynihan had authorized the Coast Guard to spend up to $600,000 to do something that would help protect the lighthouse. And that's the project that uh, I was handed. So after spending uh, a number of trips down there, talking to uh, other engineers and, and looking at it myself, my uh, plan of attack was to design and construct what's called a revetment, which is a large stone structure. Coast Guard owned 475 linear feet around the light. And that's what my project would entail. So I spent about a year and a half working on the project. Uh, we ended up constructing the revetment. It uh, was a total of 5,000 tons of rock is what we put in there. And if I do my math right, I think that's about 10 million pounds of weight that we put in there. And mm -hmm. uh, I'm happy to say it's still there. I was just uh, down at Montauk last week uh -huh. and the old revetment has withstood 30 years of storms and, and, uh, it's still standing tall. They're doing some more work uh, to fortify it even further and to protect it, but uh, just a, a great spot. And it was a uh, absolutely uh, fun project. Yeah. They're still doing uh, erosion control measures, uh, costly, very involved uh, measures there uh, as we speak, right? They are. They are. They're going all around. It's, um, you know, Mother Nature is uh, somewhat of a, a nemesis. If you protect one point, she'll go after another. So the big fix is to try to protect the entire point. And I, I lost track of the dollars. I, I think uh, it's somewhere to the tune of nine or $10 million that is being spent federal and state funds to uh, protect the entire point. Mm -hmm. including the lighthouse. So that that's going to be, uh, in fact, they were working on it when I was down there last week. That's uh, That'll be uh, hopefully a real good long-term solution for Montauk. Let's hope. I understand you were actually at the lighthouse during the famous uh, perfect storm. It was, used to be known as the no-name storm then became uh, famous as the perfect storm perfect, yeah. uh, in uh, October 91. What was it like being there for that? 
Unbelievable, Jeremy. Yeah, it just happened to be, uh, you know, coincidence. I had planned a trip down there. I was still doing some early design work and kind of really making uh, some ideas in my mind of how I would design this revetment. And I made a trip down there. I was there actually on the 30th of October. I climbed up into the tower and I wanted to shoot down at these waves. There were 25 to 30 foot waves crashing on Montauk Point. And so I, I went up in the tower. It originally was an 80 foot tower. About 20 feet was added on later in 1860. So about a hundred foot tower. And I probably didn't have the good judgment that I have today because I, I opened the door to the catwalk and I actually ventured out onto the catwalk. Hmm. We're probably 60, 70 miles an hour. And I was immediately pinned up against the side of the light tower. Um, but luckily I, um, I got the pictures that I needed and I was able to very carefully make my way back inside the light tower. But <laughs> believe it or not, uh, those pictures were worth their weight in gold because when I sat down days later back at the drafting table, uh, those pictures were immensely important for me to see the wave action mm. and how that impacted. So I survived and, and it worked out great. Not sure I'd do it again. <laughs> yeah, right. I wouldn't recommend it. It makes me think of that famous photograph by the French photographer Jean Guichard, oh, yeah. the Lajamont Lighthouse up the Brittany yes. coast of the, yes. the keeper standing in the doorway and that gigantic wave wrapping around him. That's what I'm picturing about, you. Uh, yeah, it's about what I felt like. <laughs> yeah. Well, he survived too, but there's an urban myth that that guy didn't survive and that, that was in that photo, but he did in fact survive. So uh, moving ahead again a, a bit, you were involved with the move of Block Island Southeast Lighthouse in Rhode Island in 1993, another one of, I think, one of the most spectacular lighthouses architecturally uh, in the country. I, I would agree with that. That yeah. lighthouse, the first time I ever saw it, I fell in love with a beautiful Gothic uh, revival architecture. And that project came on kind of the heels of uh, Montauk. And um, I was assigned the project to be the project engineer responsible for the Coast Guard uh, and working with uh, the Corps of Engineers had the lead along with uh, contractor International Chimney and expert house movers. But I was there to ensure that everything went according to plan with the Coast Guard. It was a fascinating project. I, I learned a lot in working with the other engineers. And uh, we found that there was no foundation underneath the lighthouse, which was kind of hard to believe. We had to create a foundation in order to move it. And then we had to build a new foundation. The other thing was the Coast Guard had taken the lens out because the lighthouse was threatened. The lens had come out, was in the museum. And we constructed a skeleton tower uh, with a modern optic on it. That became the operational light in 1987. Mm -hmm. Now we were in the early 90s and we were moving the light. Well, we determined the location of where the lighthouse was going to be was exactly right where that skeleton tower was. So we, we, we had to move the skeleton tower to make room for the lighthouse. But it was a great project to be involved with. I made a lot of good friends with uh, a lot of good folks that would pay off huge dividends on other projects. Um, and it was just a great project to be involved with. I was there once before that lighthouse was moved and I've been there many times after that. So I, I didn't get to be there for any of the actual move, but I, I certainly saw. Well, that was, the, that was the fun part. I think we had figured out the lighthouse together and a lot of folks said, well, why don't you break the tower away from the 
the keeper's house. Well, you couldn't do that. They were right. an integral design. We had determined that it uh, probably weighed about 2,000 tons together. So not only was uh, the first uh, move of a structural lighthouse in America, it, it was a, a heavy lift, uh, yeah. uh, literally. Really is incredible what uh, what you and uh, International Chimney and Expert House Movers uh, has, has done at these places. It's such a, a massive building. And uh, also another thing about the uh, Block Island Southeast Light is that uh, it had, uh, as I believe you mentioned already, it had a first order Fresnel lens for many years that rotated on a mercury bath. That equipment was removed, as you mentioned, the navigational light was moved to a skeletal tower. The old Fresnel lens was removed uh, because uh, the Coast Guard didn't wanna have lenses rotating on mercury baths anymore. So that was before the move of the lighthouse. And the old lens, because of that old type of equipment, it couldn't be put back after the move. Uh, a, a replacement lens, I guess you would say, was was acquired to uh, put in the lighthouse. And I think you had a lot to do with that. Can you tell me about that? Sure. And it, uh, it was interesting because this had kind of come up uh, once the lighthouse was moved. Um, at least from the Coast Guard perspective, our initial thoughts were we would just take the modern optic, which was a what's known as a DCB-24. It's a rotating kind of an aero beacon type uh, optic. We would mount that back in the tower or we'd leave it up on a skeleton tower. But the Block Island historical folks said, wow, now that we've got this lighthouse moved and saved for the future, we, we'd love to, to relight it in the lantern room. And of course, their initial thoughts were maybe to use the original lens. But uh, as we've mentioned we, we couldn't do that because of the mercury bath and there were some other mechanical issues with that old flash style lens. So we, we got together on a couple occasions and we started just brainstorming of what we could possibly do. Well, from my time down in the fifth district, I recall that we had taken the first order Fresnel kind of a beehive. It wasn't a flash panel lens like was in block, but it was a first order lens and it would fit very majestically in that uh, lantern room. So uh, I knew that lens was available and it had been uh, packed away. It was on display for a while and then packed away in a warehouse. And one of the things that, that folks um, may not know, but I, I learned in my work on lighthouse, lenses were moved around the Coast Guard all the time. They were put in lighthouses, they would come out, they would go get refurbished and then go back uh, and be be used again. So we proposed to the Block Island Historical, what if we use this first order lens? And so the more folks thought about it, I had some pictures and everybody loved the idea and said, wow, that, that would be awesome. We could get a first order. So uh, of course the Coast Guard um, had an operational need. We, we talked to the uh, fifth district uh, they were more than willing, since we had an operational need, to to uh, let us put it back up in Block Island. I then uh, had a Coast Guard crew go down, get the lens. We brought it up. Um, I worked with them to refurbish the entire lens, and I had to then design a um, pedestal for it, and we had to make some other modifications. I, I actually wrote a second, uh, secondary contract uh, where we uh, refurbished the entire landing room about $75,000 worth of work uh, to go into that lantern room to really make it pristine before we put the lens in. 
and uh, we were able to do that. And uh, it was um, it was a fun project, and uh, we got it lit. And uh, it's still out there today, as far as I yep. know. Oh, it is. It's the only uh, operating uh, first order Fresnel lens in southern New England in any lighthouse. Wow. It's only one at uh, Seguin Light in Maine, and only one in northern New England. So just those two in all all the New England region, and it's a uh, it's a spectacular lens and a beautiful lighthouse like that with such a a large lantern room, you know, I, I think it's a, a great thing that it still has its historic first order Me lens. Too. Yeah, so good work on that. Well, I just had one more note about Block Island Southeast Light. They've just uh, finished a lot of restoration of the interior of that building and uh, opened a new uh, some new exhibits inside the lighthouse, which is pretty exciting. I definitely want to make another trip to go back out there and see the lighthouse, especially, as you said, with all the new work that they've done in the museum. So uh, moving uh, forward, uh, actually, it was the same year you were involved with the 93, 1993 move of Highland Light on Cape Cod, also sometimes referred to as Cape Cod Light. Uh, you called that one of the most challenging of the lighthouse moves you've been involved with? It was. And the interesting thing about uh, Highland Light, two, two main things. One, because of its location and the number of different entities involved, and they all had a kind of a different opinion. My biggest challenge, will, will, as I mentioned, there are two. One, the first one was seeing how I could get all these entities to agree on a plan for. There was no, in, in this case, there was no question we were going to have to move the lighthouse to save it. And so surrounding, for those that have been out there will know that you've got the Cape Cod National Seashore and you've got a historic nine holes link golf course that surrounds the, the lighthouse. Yeah. You also have the Highland House, which is a very historic old um, hotel back from the 1800s that is preserved and now open as a museum. You also had the town of Churro and the road that entered into the light was owned by the town. So I had all these different competing factions, if you will. And, and my challenge as the project engineer, otherwise known as a ringleader, my, my task was to get everybody to agree on a way forward. That was not as easy as it sounds. And of course, my biggest challenge was that there were no funds associated with moving this lighthouse. Again, a uh, congressman had stepped forward. Congressman Jerry Studs at the time had authorized the Coast Guard to spend up to $600,000 to um, to study whether the lighthouse could be moved and how you would do that. There were no funds to actually move it. So as I got involved in the project, much like uh, a lot of uh, the projects I ended up getting involved in, I just got so involved that I had pretty much determined in my own mind that I've got to find a way to move this lighthouse. And yeah. there were two two gentlemen out there, Gordon Russell, no longer with us, and Bob Pleninger. They were part of a little local, as you'll find uh, in numerous places all over the country, a grassroots effort uh, that were trying to save the lighthouse. And so I created this partnership with them, all the other entities involved, and we came up with a plan to move the lighthouse. And we also found a way uh, through some intricate uh, wheeling and dealing that I was able to pull off. We actually came up with the $1.5 million to actually move the lighthouse. So 
looking back, as you said, Jeremy, uh, whether I could do that today, I'm not so sure, but uh, I was able to pull it off. And uh, I got to go back about 10 years later, the Park Service invited me out and I got to go back and uh, be there for a little ceremony. And it was uh, so great to see it. It turned out uh, very much as we had planned. And it uh, is fantastic to see that lighthouse still standing. I remember visiting there before the move when uh, during the time there was a trailer out in front of the, the oh, lighthouse yeah. and uh, Gordon Russell was uh, manning the, the trailer and selling T-shirts and stuff to uh, make a little money for the move. Remember chatting yeah, with him, man. One of the other interesting things about Highland, and I think I've got a, a picture somewhere, knowing what I had learned about Block Island as I finished the design and the specifications to go out for bid, and again, International Chimney won the bid for that project, and we actually worked with the Corps of Engineers to get them on board. I decided I wanted to make sure that there was a foundation under Highland Light. So all the drawings we had did not show a foundation. So on the final part of my project, I took a day, I went out to Highland Light, and we actually took a backhoe. We dug underneath the lighthouse, and I crawled down underneath the lighthouse and dug out underneath it. And much to my amazement, there was nothing there. Uh -huh. so I, I crawled up out of the hole and I looked back. I was standing only about 30 feet from the bluff. I looked up at the tower. I looked at the hole and then I decided it would be wise to hurry up and close up that hole. <laughs> so um, we again had to design a foundation and it just amazed me that this tower would be standing for over 150 years with just brick placed on sand, no foundation whatsoever. That is absolutely incredible. And I, I don't even want to think about the other lighthouses that might still <laughs> be standing <laughs> on their either. original lack of foundation, uh, you know, from that, that era. I'm sure there are others, but maybe we shouldn't think too much about that. So uh, during your years with uh, CEU Providence, and then a little bit later with Group Boston, you were involved, I believe, in multiple projects involving Boston Light, uh, of course, the oldest light station in the country, more than 300 years old. Uh, although the first lighthouse was destroyed by the British, it was rebuilt in 1783, second oldest standing lighthouse tower in the country. So what were some of the projects you did uh, related to Boston Light? I think probably Boston Light is the one lighthouse in this country that I've been to more times than I can count. And I suspect that it's probably uh, well above 100 mm. uh, times that I have spent working on a number of, of projects and things out there. First of all, again, erosion. Uh, we worked on a number of projects to uh, use gabions, which are cages of rocks and some other terracing to protect the light. Uh, we also did a restoration of the tower and a lot of the other work. Uh, and then uh, when I didn't have my engineer's hat on, I had been assigned as the deputy group commander. That's the operational commander for day-to-day -day Coast Guard missions in Boston. So I, again, uh, had a, a direct uh, connection to Boston Light. At that time, we undertook uh, restoring the old 1884 Keeper's House. And you, you may have seen it during those days. It was right out of a 1970s uh, with green shag carpet and a drop ceiling and all this just ugly, ugly uh, renovation work. And we said, no, we're going to take it back to its historical roots. So we 
just about gutted it uh, during mm -hmm. And of course, this was all during the time it was still uh, manned by Coast Guard personnel. There were three uh, Coast Guard personnel assigned there, two on and uh, at any given time. And so they actually participated in the project with us, but we uh, almost gutted it, took it down to the studs, did a um, all new uh, blue board plaster coating, took every bit of paint that was off the central staircase. It was a beautiful, uh, I believe maple wood, uh, maple or oak, I forget. And uh, that was totally restored. So did a lot of those projects on it. And uh, it was just actually uh, a great place for, for me to, uh, I ended up coming back a few years later as the group commander and spending more time at Boston Life. But I was also struck by the uh, history there and I kept racking my brain to see what we could possibly do for the long-term preservation of that lighthouse. And I was convinced, I got this idea during those many trips that I made that the way we should solve this is by hiring a civilian person to do that. And we'll, I know we'll jump ahead in a little bit and talk more about that, how that came about. But I got that idea early on. And, and uh, luckily for me, I was in a position to, to do something about it later on. But I just love going to Boston Light. It was just a fabulous place. Uh, looking back, seeing the city of Boston and uh, being out there was just a great, great place to be. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It, I, it has a very uh, big place in my heart as well. I I first spent time out there in the late 80s. I don't remember the house looking uh, like uh, what you were describing, but uh, you might remember Dennis Dever, who was the officer in charge there for yeah. a couple of years. I knew him quite well. And I, I was helping the Friends of the Boston Harbor Islands give tours there at that time. So I've probably been there dozens of times over the years, not not more than 100 like you, but it's uh, it's a really special place, of course, both in terms of history and, and beauty, I would say. Uh, you uh, played a, a big role in the return of the 1719 fog cannon to Boston Light, the first fog signal in North America, right? Uh, and which is now on display inside the, the base of the lighthouse. Can you tell me about that? Yeah, that's correct, Jeremy. At that time, we, we also wanted to, uh, there's a little museum in the base of the, the light tower, and we were trying to do some work on that. And we uh, did some research and we found the, uh, the very first uh, fog signal was this cannon, and we we knew exactly what kind of cannon it was. And uh, with a little bit more research, we found that the cannon was in place down at the Coast Guard Academy. It was on display, and so we reached out to the Coast Guard Academy, and they were kind enough to uh, to let us have it back. And uh, I went down, and we uh, actually flew it back uh, by helicopter, and our good friends over at the USS Constitution were kind enough to build a carriage for it. So mm -hmm. uh, today it's, uh, it's appropriately protected inside that little museum at the base of the tower, sitting in its beautiful wooden carriage. Um, I suppose it could probably still be used today if, if need be. <laughs> uh, it is a great, great artifact to, to have on the history of Boston Light. It is. I was there for the rededication of that. It's uh, 
it's great that it came back there. So uh, you were talking about uh, the keeper at Boston Light that you were very involved with the hiring of a civilian keeper uh, back in 2003. Uh, and of course, uh, the person is still there today, a mutual friend of ours, Sally Snowman. Uh, so could you maybe tell a little bit about that, the thinking behind uh, what went into the transition from Coast Guard keepers to uh, to the, the only to a civilian keeper who is the only person at this point is still really the only official lighthouse keeper in the United States still employed by the federal government. Yeah, absolutely right, Jeremy. No, it, it, like I said, uh, on my many journeys out there and thinking about long-term preservation, I was convinced this was the right thing to do. And uh, you had mentioned the Boston Harbor Islands. During that time from my early days in the 90s to in 2001, I was reassigned again as an operational uh, commander for the entire region from uh, Cape Cod all the way to the New Hampshire, Massachusetts border. So all Coast Guard uh, operations within that area came under my jurisdiction and uh, authority. So I, again, I was back in the throes of working at Boston Light. And I said, you know, now's the time. We had a fully established Boston Harbor Islands Park. We had auxiliary helping. We had the Friends of Boston Harbor Islands giving tours. I knew the history behind the reason why the, the Coast Guard still had this as the only uh, staffed lighthouse in America. And it all stemmed from legislation from Senator Kennedy, Kennedy in 1989. And it made sense when he put in the legislation because as we talked earlier, the Coast Guard was automating lighthouses all over the country. And what the Senator did not want to see happen, and I certainly didn't either, he didn't want to see it boarded up and closed up and not open to the public like, unfortunately, a lot of lighthouses were. So that was his impetus behind putting the legislation forward. The Coast Guard understood that language and the way the language read, it said the Coast Guard must maintain a presence. And that's how it was worded. The Coast Guard understood that to mean, okay, we have to have it manned. I always took the tack that Nah, not necessarily. We could have a civilian keeper that maybe is not there all the time, but would be more responsible for long-term preservation and keeping it open and tours and all these things that we had developed. And so fortunately during my time, I had developed a great relationship with Senator Kennedy and his staff. And I thought I really knew what his desires were. And I thought we could do that in this plan that I had come up with. First, I had to sell the Coast Guard on it. So I put together a, a great, that uh, was right in the early days of PowerPoint, I put together a great PowerPoint presentation and I shared it with all my Coast Guard super supervisors. And my plan was to remove the three Coast Guard personnel, replace them with one civilian that would be assigned to my office in Boston. They would have the ultimate responsibility for the long-term preservation, upkeep, maintenance, interaction, public uh, visitation, and they would also be the designated keeper for the light. Well, everybody in the Coast Guard loved the plan. And so they said, well, and I was a captain at the time, they said, well, Captain May, all you have to do is convince Senator Kennedy. <laughs> so there was my challenge. But like I said, I had developed a great relationship. I ended up meeting with him personally and we pitched a plan to him. He loved the idea. He said that's exactly what he had envisioned. 
He thought this would be the great way to keep it for the long term. And he gave us the green light to go forth and away we went. And um, we were able to get those three Coast Guard personnel off to a, a better duty station and a place where their skills could really be used. And then as you mentioned, we had to then hire a civilian. So we went out nationwide, believe it or not, we had over a thousand applications for the position. And uh, I had got to know Sally Snowman. She was a member of our Coast Guard Auxiliary. And at first Sally was not interested in the position. And uh, she said, no, I'm very happy to be doing my auxiliary work. But the more we got talking about it, uh, towards the end of the time frame, Sally came to me one day and said, you know, we're going to, we're going to, I'm going to put in my, my application. So she did. I was um, there to oversee everything. We had a special panel of all independent people from all over the country. And lo and behold, they came to me when they were done with their deliberation. And they said, this is a person that we recommend you hire. And it was Sally Snowman. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was thrilled to death, obviously, and we hired her. And as you mentioned, uh, Sally is still, she's done a phenomenal, unbelievable job and still continues to this day. Yeah, uh, worked out really well for everyone. Uh, just a little aside here, I was uh, there in October 89 at Boston Light on the day the legislation was announced. Actually, Senator Ted Kennedy went out there uh, with a, a bunch of press. And uh, I believe I was the only one who uh, took video of that event with my VHS camcorder. So I have wow. that entire uh, kind of, uh, I wouldn't call it a press conference, but announcement by Senator Kennedy of the uh, legislation to keep uh, Boston Light staffed. It's on my website. Huh, wow. If anybody That's wants to see it, <laughs> newenglandlighthouses.net on my, my uh, section on Boston Light. I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on the present situation of Boston Light, uh, which is really, it's kind of in limbo in a lot of ways right now. It's been closed to the public in recent years. There's been a lot of damage to the landing facilities out there by, by storms and so forth. But also it is, it's been announced fairly recently that it will be going through the process under the National Historic Lighthouse Preservation Act uh, to find a new steward, a new owner of the uh, the light station. It hasn't actually started the process yet, but it's been announced that it, that it will go through that process. So I'm wondering if you have any thoughts on all that, or basically what are your hopes uh, for Boston Light in the future? Yeah, no, I, I've tried to, as I've traveled around, I keep tabs on it and um... I, I really hope it uh, it uh, continues to be open to the public and and preserved for the long term future. Those were the two goals that uh, I personally and I think the Coast Guard and everybody that's been involved has always wanted for Boston Light, and we were able to keep that going for a good while. It um, has sustained some damage now. They're in the process, and then certainly with the pandemic has precluded uh, getting tours and things, but. Hopefully, uh, the future will be uh, will be bright for Boston Light. I certainly hope so. I'm looking forward to going out there again. No, me too. Uh, I hope that it does remain open to the public and preserved for the long-term future for generations to come. Absolutely. And hopefully, whoever, uh, whatever organization or entity becomes the new steward will be very much into uh, interpreting the place for the public and uh, providing some sort of public access. We'll certainly uh, hope for the best with that. Yeah, absolutely. So one, one more thing I want to ask you about Boston Light. We're talking about Senator Kennedy. 
Uh, I understand there was a day that Senator Ted Kennedy and a bunch of uh, Kennedy family members came out to the lighthouse and you were there. That must've been interesting. They, they did. It was uh, amazing. And that was one of the things during my discussions with Senator Kennedy, one of the things he had asked me, he said, Hey, Captain May, you know, I, I'd like to bring my family out for a little visit. Would that be okay? And of course, Senator, thank you so much. Uh, absolutely. For giving us the green light to go ahead. Certainly we'll keep in touch and we'll host you out this summer. So what I didn't know when he said his family, he meant about uh, 40 or 50 <laughs> of his closest relatives. Wow. And sure enough, they did come out. Um, and I, uh, I was uh, fortunate enough to have the assistance of a number of Coast Guard personnel came out with me and the Coast Guard Auxiliary came out with me. And so we just had a fantastic time. We hosted the senator and all of his nieces, nephews, cousins, and Everybody, uh, I think Caroline came and brought her children and we just had a great time out there. We gave them tours of the tower, the keeper's house. And the one interesting uh, fact that I tell everybody is lo and behold, what happens uh, after the big visit? Someone had brought a football. Of course. In the middle of Boston Light and Jeremy, you know very well how small the little grass area, it's no more than a little playground at best. And yep. uh, the next thing I know, a football game breaks out amongst the Kennedys on Boston light in the middle. Of it. And I'm looking around. It wasn't, it wasn't a rough day, but it wasn't a calm day either. And so I'm looking around as the waves are crashing on the rocks and the football's flying. And I'm like, Oh my goodness gracious. The last thing I want to do is lose a Kennedy over the rocks and slide chasing a football I think you know the history, George Worthy Lake, the very first keeper of Boston Lake, drowned right there off the rock. So yeah. this is what's running through my, my mind as I'm watching this unfold. Yeah. So I quickly grabbed a bunch of Coast Guard folks and some auxiliarists, and I strategically placed them in uh, precarious locations so they would prevent anything. They had a great football game. Everybody enjoyed it. And then they all safely were able to depart without uh, losing anybody over the side, so to speak. <laughs> and uh, reminds me of when I interviewed uh, Maurice Babcock Jr., whose father, Maurice Sr., was keeper at Boston Light for about 15 years, I think like 20, 1926 to 41, I believe. Uh, Maurice Jr. told me that they love to play baseball on the island, Ooh. but it's pretty small, as he said, for, for have a lot playing of baseball. baseball. So they would go to Great Brewster, or they called it Big Brewster next door, the larger oh, island yeah. next door. Oh, yeah. But even that is not that big for baseball, really. So uh, he said, in no. the water was out. The ball went in the water, you were out. And uh, I think the games were pretty short in general. You better, you better have a lot of baseballs if you're playing. And speaking of uh, Big Brewster, I remember being out at Boston Light one time. And uh, next thing we know, I was there with a couple of Coast Guard folks. A gentleman shows up. And he just was walking on the island. We had no idea where he'd come from. There was no boat, aircraft or anything. He walked over from Big Brewster. Of course, during low tide, you could do that. Right. Uh, we yeah. we pointed out he better hurry up and head back because at high tide, he's going to be in big trouble. Yeah. I believe there, I wasn't on the trip, but there was one Friends of the Boston Harbor Islands trip I remember quite a few years ago where for some reason they couldn't land at Boston Light. They landed at Great Brewster and the whole group walked back and walked forth. Walked over, really? Time. Wow. Wow, yeah. that's a cool. <laughs> I, I kind of wished I was on that for the experience.
One of the things talked about in the first part of the interview with Dan May was the National Historic Lighthouse Preservation Act of 2000, or NHLPA, under which many lighthouses have been transferred from the Coast Guard to new owners. You can read more about the NHLPA online at disposal.gsa.gov slash s slash lighthouse program. In part two of the interview with Dan, we talk about the origins of the NHLPA. Dan was one of the people who developed the Main Lights program in the 1990s, which was the model for the NHLPA. In part two, we also talk about some of his other lighthouse projects, as well as his work with buoys on the Atlantic and on the Great Lakes, and about the things he's been doing in retirement. Listen for part two in episode 159, which will be released next Sunday, February 6th. Thanks, as always, to all the members, volunteers, and staff of the United States Lighthouse Society all around the world. Check out uslhs.org to learn more about the tours the Society offers, the Lighthouse Passport Program, and much more. Earlier, we talked about the recent storm that caused some flooding and damage on the New England coast. The author and therapist Shannon L. Alder once wrote, quote, There is always a storm. There is always rain. Some experience it, some live through it, and others are made from it, unquote. As always, thanks for listening and keep a good light. <laughs>